Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Commonwealth Stories speaks to people from a host of nations, from Africa to Asia, from North America to the Caribbean. You'll hear the stories and thoughts of people from all walks of life, all with one thing in common. They have all found a home in Birmingham. So what does the Commonwealth mean to us now? How has it shaped the Birmingham we know today? And what lasting legacy do we hope the games coming to the city of Birmingham will leave? The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. In this episode of Commonwealth Stories, we'll be hearing from gold medal winning former Team England netball captain and Commonwealth Games board member Amma Agbeze about how she succeeded in the world of sport despite her family's concerns for her chosen career path. Yeah, I never actually wanted to be a professional athlete just because I think it had been instilled in me that that wasn't an avenue that I could pursue. It still feels quite surreal to me, so I don't know that I realise that it's happened. A lot of the time they play like the last 20 seconds of the game and I still hold my breath and I get goosebumps and I'm just like praying like, oh my gosh, please let the goal go in. And obviously I know it went in. She'll also be discussing her hopes for what the 2022 Commonwealth Games will bring to the city and why we should all be excited. We'll also be talking to Selbin Kabote, ex-BBC Africa journalist and Migrant Voice ambassador. Selbin highlights the realities of being an immigrant in the UK and discusses his thoughts on the Commonwealth and the upcoming Games. There were challenges, yes, but at the same time, you know, it could have been worse if uh, I did not interact or get the support of some of these organizations that I've mentioned. Despite the, the positive things that I've explained about the Commonwealth, it also has got its own negative aspects. You'll then hear from Stop Asian Hate activist, student and former British soldier, Vilangung. He'll be discussing his identity as a British-born Malaysian Chinese man and what life is like for him here in Birmingham. It is confusing sometimes because you think Birmingham is like this hugely diverse and culturally diverse city. And it is, it genuinely is a culturally diverse city and it's beautiful, but at the same time as a Chinese person, it does feel a bit, where does that fit for me? This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Life. 15 seconds, hunt for the ball, don't give it up, put it in. Go for the money shot. Joe Take the ball. Joe Harton. Helen Housby. Oh, she'll have it again. She'll have it again. Helen Housby to take the gold medal. England have done it. England have done it. They have broken history. They have made history. They have snatched the gold medal from Australia. They have taken it. Amma Agbeze gained her first cap for the England netball team in 2001 and captained the team during their historic gold medal win at the 2018 Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in Australia. She received an NBE for her services to netball the following year. We caught Amma at the Lighthouse Young People's Centre in the heart of Lazelles. The community was out to celebrate the official launch of the Games Youth Programme. Before we stepped inside the centre to meet Amma, we could hear the bass from the speakers and the cheers of youngsters as they danced, sang, and took part in sporting activities, all ready to show Amma their talents. 
In a side room away from the singing and dancing, Amma told us her life story. She was born to Nigerian parents who moved to Birmingham. Her father studied in the UK with hopes of prospering in England with his family. Education has always been a number one priority in Amma's family and sport was always secondary. But despite her family's hopes of her becoming a successful lawyer, she went against the grain and followed her sporting dream, playing netball. Amma spoke to Birmingham Live's Ida Fafana about her family's move to the city and what life was like for her growing up in Birmingham. She tells us all about her incredible journey from being a qualified lawyer to leading Team England to gold. Can you tell me a bit about your upbringing in Birmingham? So I was born in Selly Oak and raised there. Um, I've got two older sisters and a younger brother. And my parents originate from Nigeria. We were a Christian family. Education was the utmost um, in our family. So the main thing was do your schoolwork, come home. If you finish your homework, I'll give you more homework. We were all very sporty and were always outside being active. I think my first love was athletics. Um, and I trained at Birchfield Terriers at the Alexander Stadium. And then I did lots of sports at school and ended up playing netball and got into county and then sort of went on that path. I initially went to King's Norton Girls School. I needed to make sure that I excelled in my education, but I sort of worked hard in that aspect so that I could then do sports and have fun outside of school. How did your parents respond to you wanting to do, because as an African myself, I understand this education, <laughs> education, education. How did they respond to you wanting to do sport as a career? Because I understand you have a master's in finance. Is that correct? Yeah, and I've got a law degree. And a law degree as well. So yeah. I'm sure they were really happy with that. So <laughs> how did they respond when you told them, I want to go and pursue a career in sport? Yeah, so interestingly, they had constantly told me it's about education. So um, I think I got into King Edward's Five Ways for Sixth Form um, and then got an offer off a netball scholarship in Bath, just off my GCSEs. I always thought my parents were sort of draconian and told me what to do. But when I got to make that decision, my mom actually said, you know what I want you to do. Five Ways is a really good school. You need to stay there and do your education, but it's up to you. Um, and I chose to go off and to take the netball scholarship in Bath. So I was really surprised that she actually gave me a choice. But I think I always knew that netball was just an activity and you needed to go and get a decent job and follow a career and, and not necessarily academic, but a corporate career or something decent in their opinion, in inverted commas. So, yeah, I never actually wanted to be a professional athlete just because I think it had been instilled in me that that wasn't an avenue that I could pursue. I think I feel like I sort of fell into things. So I did go off and do that netball scholarship. And then after I finished my law degree, I then did my finance master's and then the global financial crisis happened and I got an opportunity to go to Australia to play netball professionally. And so I thought it was only going to be for that year and then I'd come back and get a proper job, as my mum used to call it. Um, and then that year finished, I did come back to the UK. I think I went back on tour with the England team to Australia and then got another offer in Melbourne in Australia. And so one year led to two years, led to three years, led to, it's been a long time now. I still don't have the proper job in inverted commas. I've tried to keep my hand in law. So various places that I've been, I've sort of tried to get a legal job and fit it in around netball if I can. Um, I've also done some finance, I've done some financial law um, and just various different areas of law. So I think it was instilled in me from so young that actually you need to have a proper career. Yeah, it was never, ever an option to go and do sport. Sport was just a pastime, which you did on the side. I guess I will never leave sport behind. It's my heart is in it. And I know how much it can instill just strength and power and positivity and how it can be utilised as a tool to unite people. So there'll always be an element of sport that I take with me and try to utilise um, to help people. But I'm still searching for that proper job in inverted commas. How did you um, find the sport? Like what led you to taking up netball? At school, um, my school was a netball school and the teacher um, at primary school, actually, the teacher was a netball coach. And she, I think she saw that I had talent. I was quite tall for my age. Um, I was very athletic and capable. Um, and so I think I was guided into netball by my primary school teacher, Mrs. Watkins. Um, and then I moved on to secondary school and the teacher there, Miss Bexon, was also 
very internet ball. And so I did do a lot of sports at school, but I just sort of, I guess, was guided by these people. Um, I trialed for county and got selected. I was 13 when I got selected for the under 16s and England netball made a rule that you couldn't be, you had to be 14 to play. But the coach that year was Colette Thompson, who when we won Commonwealth gold, she was the assistant coach. So she's kind of like followed me throughout my netball career. Um, So I guess I've had good coaches um, around me or good opportunities. And so I almost feel like I fell into netball. I, like I said, I did athletics and that was probably my first passion. And I'd watched so many athletes on TV training and competing and always thought I wanted to be like them. I chose netball. I say unfortunately now, but it's given me so many opportunities. So I'm glad that I've had any opportunity because they're not easy to come by. At the 2018 Commonwealth Games, you were captain of the Team England netball team and you helped the team win gold. How did that feel? It still feels quite surreal to me. So I don't know that I realise that it's happened. I feel like I'm sort of on a whirlwind. So I do lots of speaking engagements and a lot of the time they play like the last 20 seconds of the game. And I still hold my breath and I get goosebumps and I'm just like praying like, oh my gosh, please let the goal go in. And obviously I know it went in. Um, But yeah, it doesn't really seem real. I think I've seen the benefit that it's had to netball in terms of participation increased. It's been recognised more. We won two awards at BBC Sports Personality. And so there's been loads of things and my life has definitely changed because of it. I still kind of pinch myself to understand that it happened. And I think also because since I was in the England under 17s, England Netball have been talking about winning on the world stage. So getting into finals and winning. And I think in my over 20 year career, it had never happened. We'd never been in a final. Yeah, it doesn't seem real that it's actually happened that I was the captain and we won. I guess you still get the goosebumps and you hold your breath. Yeah. It shows how monumental that is for you and sure for your whole team. But how did your mum respond? Like, did she take in like the huge success or? I think people always say their family keep them grounded, but my family definitely keep me grounded. So I'll message in the family WhatsApp like, oh, I'm going to Commonwealth Games, but don't tell anybody because it's embargoes at the moment. And my sister would be like, oh, sorry, should we write to the local newspaper? Whoopity-doo. Sort of like, oh, whatever. Um, and so I feel like that's kind of how our family always like taking the mickey out of each other. For a long time, I think when I was younger and my parents had said it's all about education, I wouldn't, I feel like I wouldn't put netball in their face. So if I was, let's say, in the England under-17s and we had a training camp in, say, Bedford, so I'd be going away for the weekend, I'd just say to my parents, I'm going away to netball for the weekend, it's in Bedford and I'll be back on Sunday at this time. And then I just went, I didn't call them during the time or message them to say, oh, this happened. Equally, if we were going to New Zealand, I'd say, oh, we're going on tour to New Zealand. It's for two weeks. I'm coming back on this date. And then a lot of the time I didn't even message them during the time. And other girls would be phoning their parents or sending postcards because it was, I'm old. And it was a type of postcards. Um, But I didn't really do that. And so I think as I started to get towards the Commonwealth Games, I still kind of just carried on doing that. So I'd say, oh, I've got a training camp in Loughborough. I'll be back on Sunday. I don't think I told them I was going to the Commonwealth Games. But then my sister messaging the family WhatsApp saying, oh, I've just seen a news, an article on the, in the newspaper or on TV and you're going to the Commonwealth Games. And I said, like, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to say. So that was kind of like the relationship with the family and telling them about netball. It's only afterwards that um, I spoke to them, not like immediately afterwards, like two or three weeks later, where my mum was like, oh, my gosh, you won. It's been incredible. I think my mum occasionally on Facebook is like, oh, I saw you on Facebook. Someone posted something. Um, and so I think that's they got the news that way. So I actually think even though my mom and dad were very much, say, get netball, get a proper job. Um, I think she's proud because sometimes she'll say, oh, blah, blah, blah. One of her friends um, said they saw you doing this or that or the other. And so I think secretly she's happy. I think she's happy and proud. Do you know what it was like for your family move, were your parents moving from Nigeria here? What was that transition like for them? It was incredibly tough. My dad has many, many stories. And I think from when I was young till now, I'm hearing those stories and just, it's really hard to comprehend, I think, because of how I've experienced life in the UK. It's very different to the experience that they had in terms of not being allowed into places, being spat at, people being openly racist to them, going for job interviews and, or even not even getting job interviews because of their name um, and being told you're not getting the interview because 
of your name or your colour. So yeah, just things like that. And then also my dad had experiences at university where he would write him his assignment and then his friends would copy it who were Caucasian and they all kind of submitted the same thing and he would fail and they would get high grade and things. So they've had a really tough time and it is, for me, it's just really difficult because I feel like I experience racism. It's not overt most of the time. Yeah, I just can't imagine being spat at, not being allowed to go into places. I think a lot of people either were invited here or came here to improve themselves, better their lives, give opportunity to their children. And then to arrive, I think when you're not in the UK, lots of people see the UK as it's paved with gold, it's the golden place, it's incredible, and it's just the place of opportunity. And so then to believe that, but come here and experience things which were so much worse than they were back home, is, I think, it broke a lot of people. And I think the fact that so many people stayed and managed to have the resilience to get to where they are today is just incredible. What year? Was it 50s, 60s? Um, I think my dad came in the 60s, the early 60s, and my mum came a little bit later. Yeah, this, I've, I've heard so many stories, and not just from my parents, but from friends and, I guess, some documentaries. And now, I think, I guess, especially from the um, George Floyd's murder, people are a lot more open to listening. I think Caucasian people are open to listening and people of colour are more inclined to talk openly. But for years, obviously, I feel like there's been like an un, unspoken yeah, code between black people that this happened or your parents told you about this. or And so that's been here, that's been around since before I was born. And now I think certain things are sort of creeping out into the general populace. I definitely struggle with how things were. And also we're moving in the right direction, but not fast enough. The expectation of the, your family back home, they were almost like, you've gone to this place, it's incredible, we're here working so hard, and they just didn't understand. And obviously you tell, even now, we'll tell stories to my cousins or my uncles and aunties back home, and they just, they just don't believe, like they don't understand that it's a thing. And so I think for anybody who came here with the weight of expectation and the pressure that they were under to support themselves and people back home, they just felt, I have no choice, I just have to keep going through this and often not have anyone to turn to to talk about it because it was so hush-hush. And I think maybe in turn that's when they have children, it's so much like focus on your education, face exactly. your books, get a good job, be stable because we came here and we sacrificed. Exactly, so that we came here so that you wouldn't be messing about throwing a netball around like you don't know what I've gone through. And I think growing up, my parents would always be like, yeah, you don't know what I did, went through. Or when I was younger, I had to walk to the fountain or the well or the stream to get water. You don't understand, you just turn on the tap. And so I think they were just trying to instill like commitment, hard work, dedication in you and the sacrifices that they they made. A few years ago, you um, won a Sport Award for British Diversity. How did that feel to be recognised? It was quite odd, actually, because I've done, I've played a team game for so long. And so everything is about the team. And I think as captain, my biggest thing was, it wasn't about any individual, it was about the team. And so to win an individual individual award just felt really strange. And actually, after I'd won, I sort of approached them and said, well, how did the panel decide this? And why did you choose me when I'm an individual? And then they sort of said a few things and reasons why. And... I was still just really surprised. And I think I've the award is the award is quite big and it's at my mum's house. So every time I go, I see like most of my I don't really have many medals, but most of the things are like tucked away in like drawers or under my bed or in socks hidden around. Um but that award is the only award, it's quite big. So it's at my mum's house. So when I go there I see it. And I actually am quite I'm really grateful that I won it because I've never won an individual award because it's a team game. So I'm really proud that I've won and hopefully I think it gives um, people just, I guess, an identity and that they actually can achieve things as well. Um, and not just through sport, because I think we kind of expect people to want to take up sport, but actually sport isn't for everybody. But hopefully it shows that actually in whatever field you go into that you can excel and win awards too. How important is it that the sporting world celebrate and champion the success of athletes of colour? It is really important. And actually, I think the in sport, that I think there are a lot of 
people of colour who are successful. And so it almost when you're in when you're in sport, you don't necessarily recognise recognize that. But then I think if you step back and look at society in general and realise actually in boardrooms, there's not many people of colour or at top level, at executive level in companies, there isn't many people at that level. But even in sports, so in terms of on the field or participating, there's a lot of people of colour who are successful. But within sports themselves, at board level, um, at executive level, there aren't coaching. There's not that many people of colour. And so actually, I think... It's great to look around and see, oh my gosh, we're really successful and we're people of colour. But then also to recognise that it's not just about the playing and the participating, but actually in order for us to give back to the sport, we are the people who need to try and make changes. So if it's not, if I'm not a very good coach, then there's no point me trying to put my hand up and say, pick me to be a coach at the top level. But I guess talking and educating people who are coaches, who are people of colour, to say there are avenues, there are pathways, we just need to knock on the door, um, mentoring people. Um, And so just making sure that we transition from just being successful athletes on the field to being successful athletes who are now coaches, board members, um, senior executives, not just in sport, but in, um, in business, in the corporate world too. The duality of Amma's identity has been of immense pride for her. As a British-born Nigerian, she says that despite the British Empire being a relic of the past, the Commonwealth Games still embodies, for some, that colonial force. As a board member of this year's Games, she hopes this will be an opportunity for the second city to be able to facilitate those difficult conversations while celebrating the multitude of nations coming together in the name of sport. Amma shares her thoughts on the Games coming to Birmingham this summer. How do you think the Commonwealth has shaped the Birmingham we know today? Birmingham, to me, is a microcosm of the Commonwealth. So for the Birmingham Games, there's 72 nations and territories. And I believe every single nation and territory is represented in the community of Birmingham. Um, it's re- it's a very young city and there is ju- it's just like a melting pot of different cultures and different people. The foods that's available is just a mix of food from all over the world and the cultures. And so I actually think it's probably, well, I'm from Birmingham, so I'm probably biased, but I think it's the first time that the Commonwealth Games is being held somewhere where actually the city and the region are reflective of the Commonwealth itself. And so I think I'm really excited by that, but I want the world to know that Birmingham is like that. So it's not just a city hosting the Games. It is actually pretty much a representation of the Commonwealth. I guess it being a reflection of the Commonwealth and all the territories and countries. But what does the concept of Commonwealth mean to you? Yeah, so I've toyed with this question, I think, for a long time. Um, Obviously, knowing that the Commonwealth came about from colonisation of lots of countries and being born in England, so being, seeing myself as English, but Black English and of African heritage and knowing what my parents went through and then other nations went through having come to England or fought for England. And so it's a very difficult, I think, question to answer. And then also, I think, couple that with I've been to three Commonwealth Games. And so I'm if I go to the Commonwealth Games, I'm, I guess, representing myself within the Commonwealth um, and representing my country. And so it is a difficult decision. And I know Lots of people aren't necessarily comfortable with the Commonwealth. Um, for me, colonisation has happened and I think we're still suffering from the effects and trying to build and move forward. But it has happened. And actually, I think sport unites people in lots of different ways. And so actually, I think the Commonwealth Games is actually a tool that we can use to move forward and progress and unite. So we've all been, I guess, collectively formed through colonisation, which wasn't a good thing. But now that's happened, you you can't take it back. But actually, how can we move forward and progress and try to work together and celebrate the fact that we have been brought together? So I think for me, the Commonwealth Games is about trying to not repair the parts because you you can't change the parts, but actually trying to just, I guess, create pathways or I guess joining people together because we do have a shared history. Would you say the people of Birmingham in particular should be excited about such a huge event happening in its back garden? So being from Birmingham, I think it gets overlooked in a lot of 
um, ways. London's obviously the capital. People think Manchester's a second city, even though it's not. Um, and so actually, I think it's a great way to focus not just the world's eyes, but the nation's eyes on Birmingham. Um, it's so youthful. There's so much technology and development happening here. Companies are setting up office here. There's lots of jobs available. And so it is just a way to showcase our city and put us on the map, really, domestically, internationally. And yeah, I think why not enjoy that and also just try to piggyback off the back of it. So utilising the opportunity. So every every nation doesn't get to host the Commonwealth Games and every city within each nation doesn't. So why shouldn't we take this as an opportunity and then just grow from it? What legacy do you think the Games will leave on Birmingham? Legacy is an interesting one. I think as a board member, I'm it's one of the key things that I would hope that we do well. I mean, I think lots of people throw legacy around as a term. I would like, I think one of the things is equipment of the games. That's just like a basic thing. Um, a lot of the equipment's actually being hired, not purchased. So it's a games, we're trying to stay within obviously a certain budget. Before, I think previous games, they would buy a lot of equipment and then have to distribute it afterwards. But because the games are trying to be sustainable, so rather than spending lots of money and buying lots of things, but there is some equipment that is being bought. And I just want to make sure that it goes to the right places afterwards. So rather than going to maybe like a gym that already has a lot of equipment or has funds to buy equipment, it might go to a gym where lots of youth go there or lots of up and coming athletes, boxers, netballers, um, utilise the place. So making sure that things, equipment goes to the right places. I know that there's been work around Birmingham, I guess, transport-wise and things that have happened in light of the games happening, not necessarily because of the games, but I think funds have been put into those to sort of push them forward to make sure they happen before the games. And so I just hope that anything that has happened in terms of transport-wise or anything that's happened infrastructure-wise, I hope that it it sort of gives us an, a bit of a push and we keep maintaining that and pushing forwards. I hope it gives a lot of people opportunity to volunteer, to get jobs. I think also to just understand each other's cultures because I know there are lots of cultures in Birmingham, but sometimes we are sort of siloed within our own culture or within our own area. And actually, I know with the London 2012 Olympics, people were worried about London in terms of how Londoners are, in terms of I've got to get to work, I'm not looking at anyone. And London became an amazing city. People smiled at each other, stopped to see how people were. And I hope that that happens in Birmingham and that people in different postcodes interact and you make new friends and things like that. So I'm hoping the Games brings a whole heap of legacy that isn't just about what people might think specifically about the games. But yeah, I just hope that we can actually achieve what we want to achieve with the games. So all the athletes come here, they're excited, they're satisfied, they perform. And then also I think based around having had COVID and the country sort of being shut down, I'm hoping it is pretty much just a big party where everyone says, okay, we've put COVID behind us, although it's still around and still here. It's just a great way to be out there to accept people as they are, understand and learn about new cultures, celebrate some sport and just have some fun. And I'm praying that it's sunny. That's, that's probably one of the biggest things. Selbin Kabote is a Zimbabwean-born journalist, activist and academic in international development communications. He left Zimbabwe and migrated to the UK via South Africa in the year 2000. After feeling restricted, and unable to practice the style of journalism he believed in in his home nation. The transition to a new country and culture wasn't without its difficulties. There were struggles with the immigration process. Its uncertainty and longevity resulted in him being stuck in limbo, wanting to study, retrain and resurface as a journalist, working and reporting on matters here in the UK, but finding it impossible to do so. Selbin sat down with Birmingham Live's Ida Fafana at Birmingham's Sati House to discuss his life experiences and his migration to the UK. What is the nature of the mainstream media in Zimbabwe at the moment? Well, the mainstream media in Zimbabwe at the moment, of course, there's a new government which came into power in the year 2017. They are trying to 
liberalize the airwaves. You know, there has been for many years the mainstream media, you know, like uh, the local Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation and uh, the television stations, they've been government-run or government-controlled for many years or like since independence in 1980. So there have been moves right now. They are trying to give broadcasting licenses to some individual players so that they can, you know, try to have uh, some kind of democratic media. You... Zimbabwean born, but you moved here. What was it that brought you to move to Birmingham or did you move to another city before coming here? Yeah, uh, before coming here, I I was working for the mainstream media myself in Zimbabwe. And then I, I just decided to leave Zimbabwe because, you know, of the manner in which the government was controlling the media. So I left Zimbabwe and I went into neighboring South Africa where I worked for a shortwave international radio station. So there I was more free to practice the kind of journalism that I believed in. So I worked there for some years. Then uh, I decided to come to the United Kingdom, you know, and when the political and economic situation in Zimbabwe, it was deteriorating. And there was also in South Africa growing xenophobia, you know, anti-immigrant xenophobia, because people in South Africa felt that, you know, uh, a lot of people from Zimbabwe are coming to work in South Africa. They are taking their jobs and that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of factors. I, I, I couldn't go back home because of the political situation. And then I decided to come to the United Kingdom. I've been here since the year 2000. And how has that been, that transition from Zimbabwe, South Africa, to now being here? I mean, I, I came to check myself as a, as a child of the world. It was not easy, you know, because you leave your country of birth to go and live in a neighboring country. You have to get a work permit. You've got to get your immigration status sorted out. And then you're in another country, African country. And then you leave, you come to the United Kingdom where you have to go through the same immigration process. I was a trained journalist in Zimbabwe. I was working in radio and, uh, you know, as a sub-editor and as a producer. But when I came into this country, whilst I was trying to get my paperwork sorted out, and it took me 10 years. And because of those 10 years, you get skilled, you know. You get skilled. You, you cannot plan anything. You don't know where they are moving or coming back. And, uh, you know, th 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 that's when, you know, I decided to, to do a master's degree, you know, in journalism because I wanted to go back into journalism, do this master's degree, which saw me going to work for the BBC African Service in my efforts to get some local experience. So time was running out and all those kind of things. Then I got my paperwork sorted out. And going back into journalism after, you know, being in limbo for many years, it's not all that easy. And, uh, of course, there's also the cultural aspects, trying to adjust in a new country, adverse weather conditions. I'm separated from my family. So it was sort of a roller coaster drive, you know, that you, you come from... Zimbabwe, you go into South Africa, from South Africa, you end up coming to the United Kingdom. So it was not easy for me. When you arrived here, what was the reception you received that made you realise, OK, I'm going to have to adjust? So, I mean, I, I, it took me time, but I feel that the process was transparent. And uh, I got uh, a lot of help from a lot of charities you know, support, you know, moral support, getting people to uh, to interact with and to give me emotional support. You know, organizations like the Migrant Voice, for example, you know, that's when I started volunteering for the Migrant Voice, you know, and uh, when I was volunteering for the Migrant Voice, I think they were doing very great work and they still continue to do great work. You know, I was able to meet other people, you know, migrants, you know, people who, who do not have proper paperwork, who were trying to adjust and to live in this country. So I got a lot of support, you know, from organizations like the Migrant Voice, Hope Projects, 
and other organizations. And uh, I, I got support from religious organizations, Christian churches, you know, Sikh communities, you know, they all supported us. So there's a lot of this kind of organizations in the United Kingdom. Uh, and from, as an outsider, you learn to realize some of these things that local people may not be aware of. There's a lot of these small organizations, religious organizations, which can make someone from another country feel welcome. There were challenges, yes, but at the same time, you know, it could have been worse if uh, I did not interact or get the support of some of these organizations that I've mentioned. In 2002, Zimbabwe was suspended from the Commonwealth for breaching the Harare Declaration and later left in 2003 when the Commonwealth refused to lift the suspension. Selbin shares his thoughts on the Commonwealth today as a Zimbabwean living in the UK and how he feels about the games coming to Birmingham. What does the word Commonwealth mean to you then? The Commonwealth, as far as I'm concerned, is a mutually supportive club. I, my country, I can give you a bit of history. My country was a former Commonwealth country. And uh, in 2002, when uh, President Robert Mugabe was still the president, Zimbabwe was suspended from the Commonwealth for breaching the Harare Declaration. And the following year, uh, year 2003, Zimbabwe withdrew from the Commonwealth because uh, the former president was having a lot of issues and problems relating to democracy and human rights with the former colonial master, Britain. So Zimbabwe decided to withdraw from the Commonwealth. Fast forward, now we've got a, a new president, Emerson Mnangagwa, who came into power in the year two, 2017. He's, uh, he's, he's making efforts right now to rejoin the Commonwealth. I wouldn't ask you to speak on behalf of your whole country, but for you, you as, as a Zimbabwean, would you like to see your country rejoin the Commonwealth? Yeah, as an individual, I think it would be a very good thing for Zimbabwe to join the Commonwealth. Like the Commonwealth Games are coming, I would love to see people from my own country, sports people coming to compete in the Commonwealth Games. You know, it's a, like what I mentioned, it's a mutually supportive club and uh, being a member of the Commonwealth it has got its own advantages. The United Kingdom, for example, is a, is a, is a, is a key member in the area of diplomacy. And being a, being, being a member of the Commonwealth will enable, will, enable, will enable Zimbabwe to become one of the Commonwealth countries. And by being one of the Commonwealth countries, it will be easier for us, you know, to lobby to donors and to key diplomatic members like the United Kingdom, India, and Canada. So these are some of the things which makes it very important for our country to join the Commonwealth because we need the help of donors. We need the help of key, key diplomatic, you know, members like Canada, United States and India when it comes to, you know, to resolving a lot of differences or issues that may happen within our own country, you know, or in the neighboring African countries. So the area of diplomacy and donors is very much important when it comes to being a member of the Commonwealth. So I guess you appreciate and acknowledge the economic and political benefit. Like you mentioned, Robert Mugabe having that power struggle with the Commonwealth, like you said, his their colonial master. Do you see that, I guess, the Commonwealth is a contemporary effort to step away from the legacy of things like empire and colonialism. The Commonwealth, on the other hand, despite the, the positive things that I've explained about the Commonwealth, it also has got its own negative aspects. I mean, most of us Africans uh, look at it as a post-colonial club, which does not have much influence uh, in international affairs. When I look at the Commonwealth, it's... Uh, it's like the League of Nations. It's a skeleton with no flesh, you know. It's a skeleton with no flesh. And uh, uh, I, I don't see how we have benefited from the Commonwealth as a nation. Though, of course, I mean, belonging to it. Because I, I remember when I was growing up in Zimbabwe, there were some advantages of Zimbabwe being 
belonging to the Commonwealth, especially during the 1980s when Zimbabwe got some independence, where there were a lot of people, you know, after completing all levels, university, there were a lot of Commonwealth scholarships, which enabled a lot of people from my country to come and study here. And that made a, a very big difference to the lives of many people. So they came here with Commonwealth scholarships and they went to university here, you know, under the Commonwealth scholarships, and they have done very well, you know, in Zimbabwe, in the area of commerce and industry. So that was one thing that uh, I think was was a, a benefit of being a, a member of the Commonwealth. And, uh, of course, I mean, when I look at empire as well, there's a lot of atrocities that have been committed in the name of empire, you know. It has never been very good to us as black people. Yeah, you, you can go back, you know, to Kenya. There was the Mau Mau rebellion, you know, under Jomo Kenyatta. A lot of black people were killed in, when, you know, in the name of empire, you see. You know, that's why you find here we, 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 we have got a lot of people, you know, like uh, Benjamin Zavanaya, for example, and the other activists who, who refuse MBEs because of that link of empire. Because we feel as black people, it has never been very kind to us. I guess having worked in the media over here in the United Kingdom and also working in the media on the continent of Africa, do you see there's a difference in portrayal of things like empire and the Commonwealth? When I was uh, doing my history uh, way back home, when I was doing my O-level history, we were studying history of the British Commonwealth and the empire. That was the history that we studied. We were not taught much about how the world functions, about our own local history, you know, how the country was colonized and those kind that kind of history was not was not taught in our schools, you know. So there's been a lot of um, disinformation over the years. And uh, that's why I feel now, you know, we, 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 our children need to be taught real African history, you know, what the empire stands for, what the common law stands for, so that there can be some kind of awakening consciousness, you know. Because I, I remember my daughter grew up in this country and uh, she was coming home in tears and telling me, Dad, someone has referred to me as Kunta Kinte because of the nature in which history is taught in this country. The Kunta Kinte who was taken into slavery in slave ships is portrayed as a primitive person from Africa who were taken, you know, into the Caribbean as a slave. And because of the color of his skin and everything, you know, children, including black children, are taught to look at anything black with a negative eye. Things like that. So this is why I feel that, you know, there's a lot of deprogramming. Young people not being taught proper history, not being taught, you know, to appreciate their blackness, where they come from and where they are going. Like the Battle of Web, I had to teach my own children history and to appreciate themselves, you know. And uh, I feel that, you know, uh, the curriculum should be changed as well. You know, this is what, what I feel as uh, someone from the Commonwealth or former Commonwealth countries, because uh, the curriculum is white. The curriculum needs to be changed. Are you excited for the games coming to Birmingham? Birmingham. Yes, I'm excited about the games coming to, to Birmingham. And there's uh, someone from a former Commonwealth country which is trying to uh, to become a member of the Commonwealth once again. I'm expecting to see people from different Commonwealth African countries. And on an individual level, I'm trying to make efforts to work with other people from other African communities to see how we can make the people feel welcome. Because just small things will help. I live, I live locally, you know, and uh, when we go to the Commonwealth Village, identify African people, you know, let me take you to One Stop Shopping Center. Let me take you to some place where you can get an African meal. You know, just accompanying them, making them feel welcome, doing small things like that. This is what I, I feel I need to do during the Commonwealth Games together with other Africans who are living in Birmingham. 
but are very much excited about the Commonwealth Games. The Commonwealth, it has resulted in infrastructure development because, you know, I, I don't live far from, uh, from, from, from Peribar, you know, the shopping center. There's a lot of old buildings. There's a lot of things that were deteriorating. So that is going to give, a, you know, a facelift to our community. You know, a lot of those flats that are being built, they will end up being, you know, led to local residents. So in terms of infrastructural development, I'm very much excited about what is happening. What other legacy do you hope to be left behind after the Games comes and leaves Birmingham? Cross-cultural communication. You know, it, it will be a valuable learning experience for the people of Birmingham as well, you know, because there's a lot of issues whereby, you know, I meet people who have grown up in Birmingham. They've never been to London. But meeting people from various nations, you know, that will bring a, you know, a new and uplifting spirit. I would like that kind of interaction, which I feel will be a valuable learning experience, not only for the local community, but for people who come from all parts of the United Kingdom to witness the Commonwealth Games. Salbin describes the Commonwealth as a post-colonial club, but acknowledges the many benefits he sees for Zimbabwe rejoining the Commonwealth and being part of future games. Vilangung is a British-born Chinese PhD student and former soldier in the British Army, currently living in Hansworth, Birmingham. He is also a Stop Asian Hate activist. During the pandemic, hate crimes towards East and Southeast Asians tripled. Stop Asian Hate stands with the East and Southeast Asian communities against racism in all its forms. V's father is Malaysian Chinese and his mother is Vietnamese Chinese. They came to Northern Ireland as refugees in the 1980s. Being Malaysian, Chinese and British, V describes himself as often feeling like a minority within a minority here in Birmingham. V sat down with Anissa Vasta at community centre Sati House and shared his story telling us what life is like for him here in Birmingham and his experiences in the army. He also discusses his thoughts on the Commonwealth today and the contrasting views he has compared to his father. He also tells us what he thinks about the games coming to Birmingham. What is Stop Asian Hate for people that don't know what it is? So Stop Asian Hate is a nationwide kind of, it is, it kind of emanated from America, but obviously the UK picks it up as well. It was a kind of movement made in response to this rise of racism against East and Southeast Asian people in response to the COVID-19 panic of like, kind of like, you know, say like, you know, it's the China flu, the whole Trump thing and stuff like that. Obviously, it's not just Chinese people that were suffering in the UK, it was East and Southeast Asian people, like the first person that was known to, to, to have been attacked, violently attacked in the UK was a Singaporean student. And it's just that anything, anyone with a face that looks like mine has just been branded as this kind of like face of the virus. And from that, and we've seen in America all these, this rise of hate crimes as well. And it is kind of scary when you see these headlines. So these movements were, were made in response of that and disjoining the kind of larger anti-racism movement. So at the crux of that, it's obviously racism in, in its fully fledged form, to be honest. Growing up in Birmingham, have you ever experienced these sort of instances of racism? Yeah, definitely. I, I identify as being British Chinese, but being British Chinese in Birmingham means very little because our kind of community is, is so separate and apart. Like I, being like growing up in school, it was probably me and maybe what, three other Chinese people or identified as Chinese in that sense, that group in that school. Um, we'd have a handful of Vietnamese students as well, but I was I grew up in a school in Hansworth where it was mostly Afro-Caribbean and Asian students. And you just, everywhere you went, you'd be like the minority within a minority. Like I was the Chinese kid in, in school. I was the Chinese kid in church when we grew, we grew up going to church. I was the Chinese kid. Even when I started entering the workforce, I was like the only Chinese face there. And it, it is confusing sometimes because you think Birmingham is like this hugely diverse and cult, culturally diverse city. And it is, it genuinely is a culturally diverse city and it's beautiful but at the same time as a Chinese person it does feel a bit where does that fit for me because <laughs> yes we have a, a Chinatown which is a, a nice economic hub we have now a, like influx of Chinese students and there is a, a bird like a bustling Chinese community here it's just that we're all separate <laughs> from each other like there's no kind of place that we we call that like, this is the Chinese area in itself and growing up you kind of made aware of that as well, like being the only Chinese face and a bunch of other faces that don't look like yours. 
Like I was part of the Territorial Army for like three, four years as well. And even just entering in that space, it's kind of like you are the only Chinese person here in a, in a kind of space of um, white working class people. And you know what, it's one of the best learning experiences I've ever had in my life. And I, I, would, I would not take that experience back. I learned a lot in that, but it was quite clear there was a lot of normalization of racist jokes. And I, 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 I joined in in those jokes too, very much. I, I kind of threw my own like ethnicity under the bus just to feel like I fit in a little bit. Now that I'm older and a bit, hopefully a bit wiser, I look back on that time and I'm thinking, why did I do that? Like I just kind of, who was I trying to please? I felt singled out. <laughs> Maybe not impl- not explicitly, but implicitly, there was this kind of feeling of, hey, I, I need to, I want to fit in right now, and I might have to, you know, compromise on my identity a little bit. Which I look back on it as like, why well, should I shouldn't have done that? Your dad and yourself, I know, have kind of different opinions on the Commonwealth itself. What sort of opinions do you differ on? You know, what what is it about the Commonwealth that's so divisive between you two? Like, we don't get taught about the Commonwealth or the history of the Commonwealth much in school, especially from, from what I could say from an East and Southeast Asian perspective or anything. My dad is Malaysian. He has been brought up in Commonwealth Malaysia, and he came over here as part of Commonwealth migration as a student. So he's always had this... He's, he's lived within a Commonwealth kind of power dynamic where he, you look at the British like they are the the saviors or something, or the, not saviors, I guess, might be the wrong word, but the, the rulers of that point. And obviously, he was against the Commonwealth on that point, as in, you guys are colonizing us. We actually share that opinion. We share that view of like, yes, there's this history of the Commonwealth that's not talked about well in schools of this dynamic between citizen and states, where the state is not the Malaysian government or anything. There's, there's a whole other problem between like the Malaysian government and the Chinese community in Malaysia. But we're talking about another power, uh, the British power, which comes from overseas and how this, there's this kind of like foreign entity within your state. And he's like, this is, we're fighting against the, like this, this, this power that comes from overseas. I'm with him on the point that anything to do with imperialism is something we should talk about more. I'm with him on the points when it comes to the Commonwealth that at this stage in history, in this in British history, it is probably now used as a bit more of a kind of label or a guise to, to, to overshadow the kind of bloody history it has as well. So we can frame things like the Commonwealth Games. We can say things like um, the unity in the Commonwealth without actually speaking about the history of the Commonwealth. I guess where we differ is the, politic- the politics of East and West, where he believes that anything to do with the West, such as the Commonwealth, are the kind of great imperialist enemies of today, where I'm like, yes, there are points of history where we learn that there are, everyone's got blood in their hands and that, that saying. But just because I, you are pro-East doesn't mean you have to be anti-West. It's not team sports to me. There are granular conversations and this kind of stuff. Just because you're, uh, just because I, I kind of like, if I can say that there are pros to the West doesn't mean I'm anti-East. You can be, you can have diverse opinions in both. It doesn't mean, like if I was to compare like the East as let's say the Chinese Communist Party and then like Biden's administration in America, it doesn't mean one's an enemy. I mean, it doesn't mean one's good and one's bad. It means they could both be bad. It's not team sports. That's where me and my father differ, I guess. You know, obviously the Commonwealth Games are coming coming to, to Birmingham just right on, on your doorstep. Do you feel like they are encompassing this sort of dynamic while in their games? Or do you think it's not about that, it's just about the sports? That's such a good question because when we say it's just about sports, yes, there's that whole kind of dynamic where I want to celebrate sports. I, I love when people come together and, and have a sports day together. That's, that's but it, big kind of events like that can also be political platforms, right? And I don't think the Commonwealth Games as it, the kind of like iteration it's been for the last couple of events has been that it has been used as that guise to say, okay, this is the unity and strength of the Commonwealth in inverted commas, but there's no kind of thinking of the history. There's no kind of like identifying that there is a history of here of why these athletes or these people are, or these different colored faces are here in the first place. There's a reason for that. And now we're putting them in competition, which I get if you just talk about the sports, it's fine. I have no problem with celebrating sports, but this as the Commonwealth case can always be used as a platform to teach history. And it doesn't mean we have to erase history. We can learn from history. 
we could learn from like um, the British invasion of India, the parti- like you know the actual bloody history of the partition, things like that. Uh, we could learn about the opium wars in China, like things like that. How British colonialism has actually spread and created this Commonwealth to this point now in modern times, where we have athletes from all these different countries competing against them. Yes, you can say that they there because the tie of the Commonwealth of history, but there's blood in that history. And there's people still feeling that today, especially, for example, the Windrush generation, there are people still feeling the effects of colonialism. So is it any point in ignoring it? How can we learn and move forward and, you know, respect the actual unity in, in the Commonwealth if we don't take the history, understand it, keep it there and incorporate it into the games in some way? I'm not saying it has to be, you know, dark or anything like that. I'm just saying there's an educational platform here that no one's really using. You, you didn't know about this place before, did you? And you've obviously this sort of space to say kind of what you want to say and what sort of value does that have to kind of give your give your opinions? Uh, obviously, Sathi House, and you've said that you always wanted to sort of be more vocal about your, your viewpoints. Um, how do you think, what sort of things would sort of enable that for you to, for you to do that? I can relate this back to being a part of the East and Southeast Asian community. Like I was saying before, we were very separate, and that's like you like through migrant hit, like you know, people coming up here and not having uh, different reasons of migration, and lots of different reasons why there's no kind of central hub even Southeast Asian, even throughout the whole country. There's um something like Southeast. How I was raised in Hansworth. I've, all my friends around me have always been Afro Caribbean or Asian, and I was always the only Chinese face there. And yeah, it's it's there is ethnic diversity in Birmingham. I love it. And it always felt like there's, I always wanted a place to provide a platform for young people to express the kind of joy in this unity and diversity. But that only happens when you have a space to bring people together in the first place. And that's Sati House, that's here, right? So like even the Eastern Sati Asian community, like I didn't have a, but yes, you have like the Chinese community center and all that kind of stuff, but that's a Chinese community center. How about a community center that Chinese people can come to and be part of the, the wider community. This is this place, Sathi House, right? Yeah. You've got a lot of, you know, you've got different layers of your identity. You're British, but you're also, you have Chinese, you're Chinese as well as Malaysian. Which one of those do you feel the most in touch with? None of them, <laughs> to be completely honest. It is one of those things where if anyone tells me that I've got to be a certain way to be either British, Chinese or Malaysian, I'll be like, ah, I can't do it because... At this point in my life, I see no value in living to the standards of the old world where it's kind of like you've got to conform to certain identities. I want to make my own hybrid identity. Like I'm British-born Chinese. I'm happy with that label. I would use any kind of platform, I guess, to elevate other East and Southeast Asian people to make their own hybrid communities. Don't feel like you have to conform to certain ways of life and stuff just because certain standards or certain implicit things tell you you have to. Like, this is where I feel like... Um, Something like Sathi House or this podcast can give a platform to Eastern Southeast Asian people. It, it, things like this exist, and we can express these our voices in that way. If you see what I mean, and we just need to reach out and and find these kind of like points of community where we can latch onto them. Because we've been here for like Eastern Southeast Asian community have been here for God knows how long, and it only feels like now. And maybe it is because of you know the last two years and COVID nineteen, and you know this kind of like cohesive movement of stop Asian hate that's brought people together. But it really does only feel like now is a turning point for the East and Southeast Asian community. But we got to start reaching out and bridging, building bridges with other communities and stuff. So, what do you think the Commonwealth Games um, are going to bring to to this area as well as yourself personally? I love a celebration of people coming together and sharing it in something like sport. But you can do that with anything. That you can have a celebration of unity in any sort of format, in a sense. When it comes to Birmingham, yes, I understand the. The, the kind of dimension of this could bring a lot of economic positivity to the area. If you talk to the day-to-day person around Perry Bar, um, they're probably getting a bit annoyed about roadworks and stuff. And there is a I, there is an understandable skepticism about the long-standing economic effects this the games will have. Like, yeah, we're changing a road, which is causing a lot of inconvenience now. Hopefully, that would better, you know, kind of like traffic flow in the future, I guess. Will this have any kind of economic opportunity for people in the long term? I don't really know. <laughs> I think this is a one-shot thing, and I think that's understandable. People are sceptical about it as well. 
And does it put Birmingham on the map in any way? I don't think so. Do people, will people know what Birmingham is and understand the beauty and, and unity of Birmingham after the Commonwealth Games? From what I've seen so far, the Commonwealth Games seem to be focused very much on the Commonwealth Games and not Birmingham. Moving to a new country is a gamble for migrants, one that may not always pay off, but it's the hope of a better life and future for their children that carries them forward. But with this hope comes an immense pressure to succeed, if not for themselves, then for their children. In this episode, Selbin Kabate shed light on the toll of this transition. Once a hard-hitting journalist in Zimbabwe and South Africa, he found his experience would count for nothing in the UK, where his qualifications were not recognised. This is a story common for many migrants who place a firm focus on the importance of education as a key in the door to success. But as Ama Agbeze found, this razor-sharp focus on education, intended to give them a better life than they had, can potentially stand in the way of them following their dreams. For Amma, that dream was netball. It might not have been what her parents envisioned for her, but they'll no doubt be proud of the life their daughter has built for herself as an internationally renowned netball star. Commonwealth Stories is a laudable production, brought to you by Birmingham Live. The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. To find out more about the upcoming Commonwealth Games and to discover more about the guests who are featured on this episode, make sure to head over to the Birmingham Live website. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Live.